Hello and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, and I am continuing my literary streak by bringing in my friend Mike Trigg, who is the author of a brilliant debut novel, Bitflip. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm really excited to be here. So, Mike, we should talk about Bitflip, of course, which is a thriller set in Silicon Valley. And that's the little tease that we're throwing out there. But beforehand, we should probably establish that you are an actual Silicon Valley guy, right? You did <laughs> yeah. not grow up as a novelist. This is not your 15th novel. It's your debut novel. Talk about your journey to being a Silicon Valley guy, because you've been an executive at various companies, publicly traded companies, startups, you name it, yep. and then you made this giant change in your life. So what brought you? First, where did you grow up? Uh, well, I grew up in the Midwest. I mostly uh, grew up in Wisconsin, so I'm a cheesehead, uh, big Packers fan, obligatory, of course. Sorry about the first <laughs> yeah, week, but you know, painful. Rogers, <laughs> uh, he's a great quarterback. He'll find a way. I hope. Um, but you're right. I, I am not a tourist. I spent my entire career to this point, uh, pretty much in the in the tech startup world in Silicon Valley, and you know, really loved the profession, loved the occupation. Um, what got what inspired me to write a novel about it was, you know, a lot. Of, there's an incredible amount of coverage about Silicon Valley in the media. There's a lot of nonfiction books about, and you you are you you've uh, been involved in many of those that are wonderful from business advice to biographies, but I really didn't see too many things that I thought were accurate fictional portrayals yeah. of Silicon Valley, apart from the show Silicon Valley. Which is, Valley, I always tell great, people, yeah. terrifyingly accurate, <laughs> exactly. only slightly exaggerated. Exactly, barely satirical. Um, and so, you know, that was really what I set out to write, was something that was derived from all those experiences. I really wanted to give people what I felt would be an authentic view into what that world was like, but of course, you know, with the embellishments that you'd expect of a novel. Well, you know, you have to expect that the novel is going to have a little something, something added to it. Yeah. But let's talk about your decision to write this novel. So, like you said, you've been a Silicon Valley lifer. You've been an executive of all these different companies. You've helped venture firms and things like that. Mm -hmm. Your wife's an executive here. You've mm -hmm. been here in the Valley for so long. There are a lot of people who've been in the Valley a long time. Very few of them say, you know what? I'm going to write a novel about the morality of Silicon Valley. Right. What prompted you to make this giant shift in your life? Because now you're not working for a specific company. You're going around the country. You're signing books. You're giving talks before audiences, hopefully signing a movie deal soon. Right. What prompted this shift? Uh, well, you know, to some degree, it was a latent, uh, a latent desire in me in a long, for a long time. I, I was always kind of interested in, in taking a crack at being an author uh, didn't feel like I could make a living doing it early on, and I'm still not sure I can make a living doing it now. But, you know, I really, um, I guess the original nuggets of inspiration were derived from my wife. She's, as you mentioned, a fellow executive in Silicon Valley, where our careers have, have uh, we both went to business school at UC Berkeley and, and have been out here ever since. And I would just come home, as one does, and share little stories over the dinner table of, funny or eye-rolling things that happened during my day. And, you know, she kind of started with this refrain of, you should write a book, you should write a book. Like, there's, these are f funny things. Um, and so it started as kind of these loose anecdotes and ideas of characters and things that I wanted to portray and situations that I wanted to portray. Uh, but I didn't really have a story. You know, I just had a basket of anecdotes and that doesn't make a novel. So 
I finally got inspired around, if you're familiar with the hero's journey, sort of mm-hmm. template back to Greek mythology, you see it in everything from Star Wars to The Hobbit and everything in between. Um, and I, as a first-time writer, I, I found that very helpful because it kind of gave me the guideposts and, and framework into which to put these kind of anecdotes that I wanted to share. And so, you know, I described the book as a corporate thriller disguised, or cultural critique disguised as a corporate thriller, right? A right. lot of what I wanted to do was, you know, hold up a mirror to the world you and I live in and, and sort of show and comment on it for insiders but also give people who have never worked a day in Silicon Valley in their lives kind of a portrayal into what that world is like. Um, and then, you know, there's there's definitely those kind of thriller dr- drama that comes up in it. Um, I didn't go sort of overboard in those respects. You know, it's not life and death car chases and things like that. Um, you, you didn't channel your inner action hero? No, no. There's no, you know, burning buildings. Actually, there's almost a burning building, I guess, but... Uh, you know, I wanted, again, the portrayal to be uh, credible and to yeah. be authentic. And there, the, the arc that Sam, the main character, kind of goes on is, is kind of this slippery slope. And I think a lot of people, as they read the book, they're like, wow, I, I could imagine this. Like, each decision is kind of a small thing, but in aggregate, pretty soon it leads to a pretty dark place. Well, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Sam, and let's talk about the synopsis of the book, because of course we cannot assume that everyone has necessarily read the book. So, give it your best, you know, couple of minutes summary, and of course, leave out the spoilers because yes. we want them to buy the book. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start as as appropriate to do with the beginning. So, Sam is a, a number two executive at a, a venture backed startup in Silicon Valley, working for sort of a difficult. A younger founder that you know he's he feels like he always has to clean up the messes for, um, and he's thrown into a speaking opportunity in the very first chapter. And I, I mentioned I didn't want to make the book too life and death, so I picked what for many people is their second greatest fear, which is public speaking. And um, Sam is thrust into this conference. He barely knows what the subject is, and he kind of has this moment of lucidity where he just sort of speaks truth and he talks about um, you know all his sort of doubts that have built up over the years about Silicon Valley. And you know, that was a lot of me speaking, right? I mean, there was a lot of my perspective and voice in that initial rant that Sam has. But in the story, that ends up being the, the jumping off point because he loses his job over that rant. Um, and, you know, back to that hero's journey template, that ends up being the thing that sort of casts him out of his regular world and a lot of the story from there is sort of his road to redemption, finding his mentor, finding the elixir, all these kind of um, things from that, that storyline. So what ensues from there is Sam basically inadvertently, after he's been fired, discovers there might be fraud going on within the company. And so in a mix of you know, good intentions uh, to try and reveal what's going on, but also to kind of get a little exact a little, a little revenge, revenge exactly. Yeah. Um, he starts to pull on that thread and uh, ends up going back into the company. Um, and, you know, that's when a lot of the drama ensues. Voila. And in the course of this, again, you mentioned, you know, you had the anecdotes that you gathered and then you had the inspiration of the hero's journey. How much of you is in Sam? How much of Sam is in you? Yeah. Uh, that's, as you might imagine, a very common question I get. And how many people do I know who are in the book and yeah. sort of thing? How, how based on real life is it? 
you know, I'd say the first draft that I did of it, it was a little bit more, you know, autobiographical. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, things that had happened to me and and uh, characters that I that I'd met before. But as I refined it from the 400 plus page tone that it was initially to its current, you know, 270 or whatever it is, um, I, it 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 really transformed and became more fictionalized. I realized, you know, there were a lot of characters who. Um, were sort of superfluous, and I realized, okay, I can kind of create composite characters that represent different sort of Silicon Valley archetypes, if you will. You didn't need to stick to the actual people with their serial numbers filed off. Correct. You could combine them together. Correct, correct. And and that isn't what I want. I, that wasn't the book I set out to write. Yeah. Right. I, this wasn't really meant to be a, a memoir. Uh, you know, a memoir of my actual career probably would be too boring anyway. So I figured, you know, I'm going to write a, a fictional story. And, um, you know, I've, I've been very proud of the, the end result. I think, again, as a first time novelist, this was close to home, you know, it was following the adage of write what you know. Yeah. But um, it definitely expanded my horizons as an author. And, and you know, I'm, I'm continuing to write books from here. I've got another book that's in process. And oh, any, anything you can say about the book that's in process? Yeah, I've got a little teaser on my website, uh, which is MikeTrig.com. Um, the next book, uh, the working title is called Burner, as in like a burner phone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it doesn't carry forward any of the characters or storylines from BitFlip. But um, there's... it. it you know, focuses on a similar message, which is yeah. what is the impact of technology and the technology industry on our lives? Um, in this second book, I really lean into social media and the influence that that's had on our lives and our politics. And um, so, and it's, it's also got a little bit of a love story in it as well. There's a, a dual first person narrative between um, the two main characters. In the, ah, in the interesting. So, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about Bitflip for a second. So, as you mentioned, it's a thriller, but it's really thriller as social commentary. Mm -hmm. And I guess the question I would ask of you is, where along the way did this sort of pent up desire to you know, release your words into the world, like Sam's rant, mm -hmm. uh, when did it really start to hit home? Because I look at the industry and it does feel like it's changed yeah. from the time you and I started. Yeah. So yeah. talk me talk to me about what you perceive as having changed in the industry. Yeah, I that's a major theme of the book, right? The there's you know, Sam, as I did, arrives in Silicon Valley in the you know carefree halcyon days of the dot, first dot com boom. Um, and you know, I think the tacit promise of Silicon Valley was you can make a bunch of money, but you also can be a good guy. You know, right. you're making the world a better place. Exactly. We're not like those Wall Street assholes. Right. Those Wall Street assholes or big oil or big pharma or these other, you know, nefarious industries. We're, we're the good guys. Right. Um, and I think for me and for a lot of people, it really was kind of like 2015, 2016, when the stuff around the election and the manipulation of social media uh, came to light. The Cambridge Analytica stuff, mm -hmm. I think when a lot of the mental health issues became more in the forefront of people's awareness, um, you know, it, it, it did kind of cause this reckoning, I think, a little bit. And for many people in the tech industry, myself included, I described it as sort of an identity crisis where, you know, if all of a sudden they make the world a better place, part of the value prop sort of falls apart. 
and you feel like, oh, is all we're doing making money? Like, are we really the good guys anymore? Um, and so I think that disillusionment is pretty prevalent in the Bay Area right now. Yeah. I think a lot of tech, people in the tech industry, especially big tech companies, are really reassessing, you know, if, am I part of a machine here? Am I, you know, have I lost my moral compass? Um, and, you know, many of the instances in the book are, are derived from moments like that that I've felt. So it was an interesting parallel to write a book and the, the title itself, BitFlip, is, you know, as when in binary code, when yep. a bit goes from zero to one, it's kind of this change of heart. Uh, Sam, the character, was going through a change of heart, but I was going through that change of heart, too. And I think that's an aspect of the novel that's really resonated with a lot of people in the tech industry. Is they're like, well, Wayne, I've had that same change of heart and I want to read about this and... You know, people who read it say it, it hits almost maybe too close to home for them. So. Well, that's a good sign, right? It means yeah. that you have accurately captured some of their own inner conflict. Angst, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think, you know, you see that manifesting itself in many ways. We were talking before the start of this about, you know, San Francisco just feeling a little bit like a ghost town still. And, you know, the great resignation, people really, you know, finding new jobs and leaving the industry uh, you know, I saw a stat that for, I think it was 25 to 35 year olds, a quarter of them have left the Bay Area, you know, just left yeah. uh, for less expensive real estate and different jobs and or working remotely in their existing jobs. So that's obviously COVID was a huge disruption for everybody. But I think in some ways we uh, could handle it better because work in the tech industry can be kind of done from home yeah. fairly easily and we're all comfortable using those technology tools to enable us to do that. But it, it has also kind of had this lingering effect where things just don't feel back to normal because of that. Yeah, no, and I agree. This is something we were discussing before recording began. It's strange how here in the Bay Area, people are not going back to the office. And yet in other parts of the country, places like New York, it's back to normal. Yeah. Everything is as crowded as could be. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's honestly, it's a little bit sad. And, and you realize when you go into the city, I, I, I've been doing, actually, I should plug it. I've, I've been doing a series of uh, videos on YouTube that are described as a virtual book tour. So I mm. go visit some of the places that are uh, scenes in the book, basically, and show, show people those scenes. That's really cool. It is. It's a lot of fun. And, but one of the scenes is in Soma in San Francisco. And, you know, you walk around Soma and you look at abandoned restaurants and yeah. bars and just all the businesses, small businesses that were there to support tech workers. Three years ago. It was, three yeah. years ago it was packed. Absolutely packed. Right? Absolutely you packed. Place. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's, it's not obviously the tech industry's job to keep, you know, related businesses in, in business, but... Um, you know, there, there are these sort of second order effects that have really been tough for a city like San Francisco, especially. Uh, and I do think, and again, I'm sure you have friends like this. I've had various friends who've moved to other places and yeah. some of them have actually returned, right? Yeah. One of my friends moved to Houston and the primary reason was it was a pandemic and there was no room in this tiny little home in the Bay Area. And so he rented a giant home out in the outskirts of Houston. And his wife, who was a, a school teacher, could also teach classes in person instead mm -hmm. of teaching them via Zoom. So it made sense. But he just came back a couple of weeks ago and I said, well, hey, it's great to have you back. Tell me more. He's like, yeah, I never liked it out there. It's yeah. a wasteland. I was just talking with another fella today 
who was a very successful entrepreneur out in Central Florida who moved here who just said, you know, there's nothing like this place yeah. in terms of the ambition, in terms of the openness to new possibilities. It would just be a shame if that were to go away. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you felt the same way when you arrived here. I mean, it is an incredibly special yeah. place. And there, I, I attribute a big part of that sort of culturally to you know, the, the process of self-selection. You know, many people, most people who are here opted to be here. You know, they, they came to Silicon Valley to pursue uh, this industry. Um, and so you kind of have this self-selection process where you've got, you know, really bright, really ambitious people um, who, who make it a truly globally unique place. There's also, though, you know, some, some negative side effects of that, too. I mean, the arguably the core message in the book is ambition run amok, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we've all, all of us who've lived in the tech industry have seen that happen, uh, you know, sometimes tragically. And, and, you know, that was something I wanted to write about as well. Now, in a book, a novel especially, you can't get too preachy, right? That's right. that's part of the thing. You can't get too preachy. Like you said, some of your thoughts come out in, in Sam's rant. But let's say I made you the Grand Vizier of Silicon Valley. And I told you, Mike, I want you to return Silicon Valley to the sort of greatness it had prior to the pandemic. But I also want you to use this as an opportunity for improvement. I just don't want the status quo. I want you to make right. a few changes that are going to make things better. What would you do? Uh, it's a great question. I, I really, you know, tried in the novel. Most stories have, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, the protagonist and the antagonist. And I really wanted the novel to not have a clear protagonist and antagonist. You know, the, there, and the point of that is there's a little bit of good guy and bad guy in all of us, right? We are all complicit uh, to what Silicon Valley has become, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, that was another motivator for me in writing the book in the first place is I just felt like a lot of the media and nonfiction coverage of, of Silicon Valley and the companies and the personas here kind of either tended to glorify or vilify. You know, it That's was right. like, you know, and in some cases, you know, Mark Zuckerberg being a great example, went from glorify to vilify. Right. You know, there, there are many who, you know, we've propped up and then we've torn down and um you know, it, back to your, your point about if I were to sort of wave a wand, I think that element, that ownership, that sense of accountability that people have had in Silicon Valley for a long time is its secret sauce, right? Yeah. I mean, we've sort of let maybe some of the egos, some of the wealth get a little bit overinflated. And, but, you know, at its core, Silicon Valley is pretty close to a meritocracy. I mean, and I think if we can sort of regain that sense of what are we doing, what is its value to society and to the furtherment of, of you know, our country and our culture, that's what we lost sight of a little bit, I think. And, you know, I, I, I hate to see sort of a, a generation of people who've come to Silicon Valley in their early, early part of their career, as I did, sort of never quite have that sentiment and that feeling. And so I, but, but I think it's there. I think that they want that. And, and in fact, generationally, that generation is even more, places even more importance on sort of the social mission of, of what they're doing. So 
So. Absolutely. I do see that in the younger generation. My daughter just graduated from high school and you know, she's really intense. She's going to study uh, environmental sciences and sustainability. She's really focused on issues like climate change. All of her classmates are. And I think that the tragedy would be if the bright, ambitious people don't look at Silicon Valley and say, hey, here's a great opportunity for me to have impact. Right. If instead they say, hey, this is a place that is beyond redemption and I shouldn't do that. Uh, I think I look back over the history of Silicon Valley and I look and I say, you know, the problem was that the core influences of Silicon Valley gradually went away as, as later generations came through and, and ignored what it actually built the place. And when I say what built the place, I think of two key things. I think of Hewlett Packard, mm -hmm. Bill Hewlett and David Packard, yep. who created in many ways the original management paradigm for Silicon Valley. Yep. Management by walking around, sharing the wealth, profit sharing, we trust our people, empowering people, doing all of these things that people in traditional business on the East Coast thought were insane, right. but helped make Hewlett Packard one of the world's great companies. Absolutely. And then at the same time, the next thing that happened is the computer revolution came hand in hand with the counterculture, with this utopian ideal, yeah. whether it is the whole earth catalog and the whole earth electric link, whether it is the influence of the counterculture on people like Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And that was also key, a whole utopian thread that mm -hmm. really used to characterize San Francisco. And then somewhere along the way, Bill Hewlett and David Packard retired and passed away. Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs sort of became the iconic figure of Silicon Valley. And while he had that countercultural element of it, that's not the element that we glorify in Steve Jobs. What we right. glorify is the ability to create killer apps and killer products and make giant colossal amounts of money. Yeah. And the old moral valence of Silicon Valley kind of went away, right? Hewlett Packard got turned over to Carly Fiorina. Yeah. <laughs> and then Mark Hurd. I mean, yeah. holy smokes. And the counterculture, it only shows up in, in people going to Burning Man and putting together <laughs> cool installations. And 355 days of the year, they don't care. I mean, what happened here? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I mean, you could put it through the lens of, you know, those companies won. I mean, you know, it used to be a big part of the ethos was we're the Davids fighting the Goliaths, right? right? You know, whether it was Hewlett Packard or Apple fighting IBM, um, you know, the, the, the counterculture aspect of that, um, you know, was confronting the traditional patriarchal, patriarchal kind of corporate hierarchy yep. and everything. Um, and, you know, now you look at it and you're like, well, big, these are all the biggest companies in the world. Right. Like, it's like, you know, the Goliath is, you know, six feet under at this point. And, you know, the Goliaths have become, obviously, Meta and Google and, and Apple. Apple and, and Amazon, not technically part of Silicon Valley, but kind of greater Silicon Valley. Yeah. And yeah. I just think, you know, anytime you reach that point where, I mean, arguably these companies, not arguably, I think in, in, indisputably these companies have greater sway over our lives than our governments in many right. ways, right? Or, or in, and more power than many governments around the world. Um, you know, that becomes a scary thing yeah. when, when you think about how few people manage, you know, our, our culture, our political conversations, etc. You know, that is, that, that becomes the thing you need to be counterculture to, right? I mean, Absolutely. all of a sudden the new, flag bearers, you know, are the ones that need to be challenged. And so I think 
a lot of the tech lash, if you will, to use that term, is is really well justified because people see, you know, how how you know kind of imbalanced it's become. Right. And I do think that a big part of this is something that I describe as, you know, there's a hierarchy and people talk about positions then people talk about people and people talk about uh, principles. Mm-hmm. Right. And I always think the, the lowest form is the people. Right. And we see this out in the national political stage. I say this, therefore, it's correct. That's mm-hmm. like the lowest form. It really should be higher at the principle level. But in many ways in Silicon Valley... People had this notion, well, because we're the tech industry, we're the good guys, as opposed to we're the good guys because of the things we do that benefit society. Right. Once you decide that you're always the good guy no matter what, then you're no longer the good guy. Right. (laughs) Right. I do see, though, um, you know, the tech industry is exceptionally good at reinventing itself and listening and, in general, Populated with, you know, my book notwithstanding, with well-intentioned, <laughs> well-intentioned people who are trying to do the right thing, and so you know, I, I do think it is interesting how um, you know you see sort of uprisings, if you will, within yeah. companies, within Amazon, within Apple, within Google, that you know the employees are raising their hands and saying, "Hey, we're not comfortable with some of the things we're doing." Uh, there's a challenge to that. There's also obviously you know just a constant bubbling up of disruption of you know next generation of players i mean you you look at what's happening with meta um you know i don't want to sidetrack on a whole meta well, versus no, tiktok no, thing but, but absolutely tiktok is blowing them up right exactly. i mean and and i've been on that on i've been the disruptor and i've been the disrupted and you know that force is you know that market force if you will really is constantly you know, swinging on, on Silicon Valley. And I think it forces uh, organizations, whether they be on the operational side or the investment side, to kind of change. Right. And Silicon Valley has been successful over the long term because of reinvention. Exactly. I think that that is the key point. And people often tell me things like, oh, my goodness, you know, how can we have innovation when these companies are, are all the same? Uh, and I tell them, well, that's just nuts. Uh, if you think about it, these companies, they are not going to stay the prominent companies forever, right? Once upon a time, as you put it, IBM right. was the key company. Right. And then after IBM came Microsoft and Microsoft and Intel and Cisco were the three big players. Nobody could ever beat them. And Oracle was super important. All these different things happened along the way. And so, you know, five years ago, people were like, oh, my God, Facebook is so dominant. No one yeah. can ever challenge them in yeah. the consumer side. They'll be this locked in monopolist forever. And, and like you said, here comes TikTok and it's not done anything to attack Facebook directly. It's just offered a different experience yeah. that people have gone for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, one of the things that's funny as I've pivoted into this career in publishing, there are a lot of analogs between publishing and software, especially, right? Um, one of the challenges there's it's just easy to launch a software product, right? You know, a couple guys in their garage uh, can whip something up pretty quickly that can, you know, you look at WhatsApp and TikTok right. and other things that have grown just at such an incredibly fast clip. 
Um, and, you know, on the lower end of the market, there's just saturation of so many different yeah. uh, products and opportunities uh, out there. And so, you know, I think, again, it's back to those market forces are things that just do disrupt and kind of cleanse the space over over time. You know, we are, that said, we are in a unique time. I mean, when you look at the concentration of power and market share that we're, we're living in right now in, in the categories that matter, um, it's, it, it is concerning. And, and I have argued on my blog for, you know, better, better regulation. I mean, I think that there's an opportunity to uh, bring regulatory concepts. I'm not suggesting there be a giant regulatory bureaucracy over the tech industry, but I contrast the space I'm in with my wife's industry, which is medical devices, where you have to run clinical trials and mm-hmm. you know, get, mm-hmm. get regulatory approval. Um, you know, you look at something like the Facebook files. If Facebook had to report, you know, the quote-unquote clinical trials of a new feature they were considering for their platform to some governmental body, so there was some transparency into what will this new feature do to the millions of people who use that product, I think that would be very helpful. Um, you know, the, the Communi- Communications Decency Act, uh, Section 130 or whatever it is, um, is another good example where that has been sort of this giant loophole for a lot of the worst actors in the social media space to, you know, really uh, abuse and misuse those platforms to spread disinformation, misinformation, et cetera. So, you know, I think there's some fairly uh, appropriate and probably overdue um, legal and regulatory measures that should be taken to kind of incur, you know, make sure that the monopoly forces, monopoly market forces don't uh, prevail. And of course, I am a huge fan of market forces and capitalism. But what I always point out to people is capitalism is an amazing engine for creating wealth, but it does not by its nature distribute the wealth. In fact, the 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 inequality is a feature, not a bug. Right. It is the incentive to drive this innovation, and therefore you cannot expect market forces to address the issue of inequality. Yeah. It has to be addressed by government and regulation. Yeah, yeah, and and you know that is a major theme of the book as well. I mean, there's there's you know kind of this backdrop throughout in many scenes where the juxtaposition, which we all feel living in the Bay Area, that can be jarring, where you're you know, people in Teslas and, and homeless people, you know, shooting up. I mean, there's, there's just incredible uh, disparity of wealth and, and living conditions right now. And, you know, that I completely agree is is not something the market deals with well. Um, you know, we, we're, we're t- we talk all about, you know, now how the economy is facing challenges it's it's largely the stock market, you know. And That's the right. Stock, stocks are held by a very very tiny fraction of the population, um, and you know that though that has become a vehicle that really has driven this astronomical wealth gap in our country. Yeah, and again, we saw that happen during the pandemic, and it's always funny, right, when people talk about prices. Higher is always better, and yet at the same time is higher better like when housing prices go up is that a good thing or a bad thing well it's a good thing if you own housing it's a bad thing if you don't right and so the rise of stock markets is a good thing if you own stocks but not a good thing if you don't yeah and so you know you can look at a stock market correction as a way of 
naturally correcting some of those issues. Yeah, purging it out. Yeah, and you know the other economic economic uh, issue that's on a lot of people's minds is inflation, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And especially today, I saw the stock market was down dramatically uh, with new inflation data. But you know, there too, you look at that. I don't like to pay more for gas or more for a meal or anything any more than anybody else. But you know, the drivers of that are things that have sort of suppressed working class people for a long time. Um, you know, wages being chief among them. Uh, you know, I have a friend who's a restaurateur in the city. He's like, you know, I can't. I need to charge a certain amount to cover living wages for my employees. And, you know, if you start to sort of think about it in those terms, it's like, okay, I can pay $30 for an entree, $40 for an entree, whatever it might be, um, because, you know, it's the right thing to do. I mean, I think that there's there's um, a lot of elements of the current inflationary environment where, um, you know, ga- gas prices is another great example. We should be paying more for gas. It's a scarce resource that's destroying our environment. You know, it should be actually priced higher, arguably. Or and in most places in the world, it is. Most places in the world, it is. Exactly. And so, you know, I look at those kinds of everyday expenses that get a lot of complaining from, from people who can easily afford it, um, <laughs> that, you know, it's probably overdue. We, those things haven't corrected up and they haven't kept pace with, um, you know, with the rest of the economy. So I think people can tell from listening to you, Mike, that you are a passionate guy. You've poured your heart out onto the page. You've created these characters and, and let them loose. So hopefully they've been listening in. They've been thinking to themselves, gosh, i got to go get a copy of BitFlip. So yeah, yeah. where do people go to buy their copy of BitFlip? Where's the best place for you for them to buy it? And where can they see you? Because you're doing your virtual book tours. You're doing actual yeah. physical book tours. Yeah. Where do they go? Yeah, uh, it's been a really fun, so the book just launched in August. It's available pretty much anywhere you buy books. Um, you know, Amazon, of course, Barnes and Noble, of course. But you know, I'm always a big proponent of supporting your local bookstore. For me in Menlo Park, that's Kepler's. Uh, many people in the Bay Area don't live too far from a Book Sync or a Book Passage. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to host events at many of those. Bay Area bookstores, uh, those two included, and you can, if, if you missed them, you can watch them on my website. Uh, I've got a bunch of events coming up. I've, I've, I'm going to do, probably by the end of this fall, uh, over 20 live events, which is fantastic. Wow. Uh, my, my latest this week is Thursday in New York City at a wonderful bookstore in Tribeca called The Mysterious Bookshop. And that's Thursday, Thursday September 15th mm-hmm. uh, at 5.30 p.m. for those who, who wish to visit. But it's a bookstore that specializes in kind of mystery, suspense, and thrillers. And w- it'll be a conversation about uh, many of the topics we've touched on today, kind of white-collar crime and uh, in, in the tech industry. And so that'll be great. I'm going to be speaking in, at Island Books in Seattle coming up next week. I'll be speaking... Um, at a bookstore uh, in Chicago the following week. Uh, so it, there's a bunch of events coming up. You can find them all on my site, miketrig.com forward slash events. Um, and, you know, come. I'd love to have people come out and, and uh, listen to a talk. And how do you spell Mike Trigg, just for those people uh, out there listening? double G, yeah, T-R-I-G-G. Um, and Mike is just the regular way, M-I-K-E. Mike is the regular way, yeah, yeah, M-I-K-E-T-R-I-G-G.com. Uh, you know, bunch of other stuff there on my site too i mentioned the teaser for my next book uh, burner i've got i'm a fairly act, act, active blogger a lot of blog posts on some of the topics that we've discussed today 
my events, my media coverage, you know, book reviews, all that sort of stuff is there. Fantastic. And by the way, Mike, you and I will be doing an event together as well. I neglected to mention it, but yes, <laughs> coming up at uh, Hana House in Palo Alto, which is uh, a great venue. It was originally the Varsity Theater, then it was a Bar Borders Books, yep. and now um, it's run by the folks at SAP as a co-working facility. So um, Chris and I and um, a professor at Stanford named uh, Mehran Sahami We'll be having a conversation on these exact topics, so I encourage you to come to that as well. Absolutely, and so you can go to Hannah House and look that up, and I believe there's an evite of some kind yeah, that they can use. Eventbrite registration. Eventbrite. There. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah, evite. Oh my God, I sound like I'm from the year 2003, which is all too appropriate given the context of Silicon Valley history. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming in. I want to tell the listeners, you could probably tell there's a slight difference because we are actually recording this in person. Live. If you no can believe masks. it. It's We're going to do it live. So this is the first time I've recorded a podcast live and in person for quite some time. Mike, thank you so much for coming in for this. Thank you, Chris. Any final thoughts, anything to leave folks with? Uh, you know, I, I just, I guess I'd leave them with a thank you. You know, it's been really great uh, outpouring of support for this book. It's, it's uh, been incredibly gratifying for me, you know, much more valuable than buying the book for, you know, $17.95 or whatever the list price is, is, you know, people reading the book. It's, it's just, it's a much bigger investment of time uh, for those nine hours. It's actually also now, as of today, available as an audio book. So, Ooh. you know, I figure if they're listening to a podcast, they might be audiobook folks. Uh, but that's that feedback and that discussion. That's what I intended with the book. I wanted it to be a stimulus for these kinds of conversations. So I really appreciate you having me on so we could have one. Fantastic. Thank you, Mike. And thank you all for listening. And I hope that you have enjoyed this wonderful conversation with Mike Trigg. Again, his book is BitFlip, which is a novel of Silicon Valley available in bookstores everywhere. And I hope that wherever you are, you have a fantastic day. Be sure to go to Mike's website, MikeTrigg.com and find out where he's going to be appearing.